Hey everyone, and welcome to The Year Was, the podcast all about the day that gives you just enough information to effectively be that guy at the party, causing all your friends to question, hey, who invited you? Like, seriously, why are you here? I'm your host, Michael Montalvo, and for the next few minutes, we will swim through the river of time to try and find out what makes today truly unique. In this episode, we examine the events that occurred April 20th. In one of the most depressing things I've ever had to write, April 20th is unfortunately a day of death. Today we're going to look at three of these events and then a slightly happier one at the end in an attempt to offset the sadness of it all. I don't have any jokes for this episode, so without further ado, let's just jump into it. There will be some graphic imagery in this episode, so feel free to skip it if you are so inclined. The year was 1973, and on this day, April 20th, serial killer and Hannibal Lecter inspiration, Ed Kemper, murdered his mother and attempted to dispose of her vocal cords after years of abuse. Edmund Emil Kemper III was born December 18, 1948 in Burbank, California, to parents Edmund Kemper II and Clarnell Stage. Ed was the second of three children and the couple's only boy. He was a big child in the sense that he was tall, and as far as I can tell, his childhood was a bit rough as he would later describe his mother as controlling and abusive, saying she would continuously call him stupid or a sissy and a real weirdo. Allegedly, his mother forced him to sleep in the basement of their house while Ed's two sisters were allowed to stay upstairs. She would later claim she did this because she feared Kemper would sexually abuse his sisters. But it wasn't just Ed Kemper who thought his mother was abusive. According to ThoughtCatalog.com, after divorcing Clarnell when Ed was nine, the elder Edmund, who had been belittled for his job as an electrician, compared her to his time in the military, saying that suicide missions in wartime and the atomic bomb testings were nothing compared to living with her. Perhaps because of all this abuse, he began to show signs of trouble at an early age, and he began to torture and hurt animals and toys, an act that a lot of serial killers seem to share. He burned his family's cat alive, then buried it, dug it up, and dismembered it, then put the head on a spike. He killed a second family cat because it loved his sister more, and he enjoyed playing games like gas chamber and electric chair with his sisters. When he was teased of being in love and wanting to kiss one of his teachers, he responded that he could only kiss her if he killed her. When his sisters told their mother this, she violently beat him in order to scold him. Throughout all of this behavior, however, the help was never sought out for Ed Kemper, and while I'm not saying that it would have fixed or corrected some of his issues, it may have helped. This abuse that he faced was not limited to his own home. He was bullied in school for being tall, and at the age of 14, he ran away from home and went to live with his father, whom he had a good relationship with. He was actually welcomed there, but was soon after sent to live with his grandparents after some issues arose with his new stepmother and stepbrother. Abuse began anew, this time with his grandmother, and while his grandfather was aware of it, did nothing to stop it. Ed Kemper's first murder victims were his grandparents killing first his grandmother after a disagreement and then his grandfather in order to 
I guess, cover up the act. He shot both of them in the head, although there is a bit of time between the murders. Interestingly, though, he called his mother to confess, and she told him to call the police, which he did, and after being diagnosed as schizophrenic, is placed into a psychiatric hospital, where he was a model patient. He stayed there until December 1969, when he was released against his doctor's wishes into the custody of his mother. He even had his criminal records expunged, and things were kind of okay for a while, but then he began killing again. From the summer of 1972 to April 1973, he would lure mostly young female college students or hitchhikers into his car, then murder, dismember, and abuse the bodies. He killed six women this way, and it earned him the nickname, the co-ed killer. Then he turned his sights onto his mother. On the night of April 20th, Kemper entered his mother's room and after she had fallen asleep, he slit her throat then beat her with a hammer. He then did what he did after murders and dismembered the body and sexually abused it. When he was done, he used the head as a dartboard and then cut out the tongue and larynx to be thrown into the garbage disposal, then placed the body in the closet and went out for a drink. On his way back home, he called his mother's best friend Sally Hallett and invited her out. When she arrived at the house, she was strangled and placed into the closet as well. He then got into his car and drove to a payphone where he called police and admitted to them to being the co-ed killer and also of his latest victims. He then waited for the cops to arrive to arrest him. He would later say that after killing his mother, he had no hatred left inside him and had no desire to commit any crimes. So the police arrested him and he confessed to the murders and was put on trial for eight counts of first-degree murder. At first, his attorney sought to enter a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity, but he was found to be sane. Kemper did attempt suicide twice, but was rescued both times and was eventually sentenced to seven years to life for each murder to be served concurrently. Today, Ed Kemper is still in the California Medical Facility where he is again a model prisoner. He will next be eligible for parole 2024, but believes that no one will ever let him out. As previously stated in another episode, he was one of the inspirations for the character of Hannibal Lecter and also the series Mindhunter. The year was 1999, and on this day, April 20th, the tragedy of the Columbine Massacre, one of the worst school shootings in United States history, took place. Columbine was one of those things that was all over the place when it happened because nothing quite like it had ever happened before. It was a time before the constant bombardment of similar stories, and it was the catalyst for the debate of gun control and school safety. I know there is a plethora of information about what happened and don't know what, if anything, I can really add to this discussion, so we'll just briefly go over it. In order to do that, however, we have to look at the time before. Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold were described as very intelligent. They had been in the gifted program with a friend of theirs, Brooks Brown, since the third grade. 
While Brown had left the program within a year due to the competitive nature of the program and lack of teacher support, Klebold stayed growing more and more miserable until the sixth grade when he finally left the program himself. While Harris was a bit shy, Klebold would often bottle his emotions until they erupted in a volcanic burst of anger and rage, something that was described as uncharacteristic. Harris was from a military family and, as the media loved to point out, played violent video games. Some reports say that they were unpopular, while others say they had a fair amount of popularity. There is a story of a girl dumping Harris and then him responding by faking a suicide, causing the girl to never speak to him again, and honestly, that's a pretty messed up story. Klebold and Harris both got a job at a local pizzeria, and that's where the two really became friends, and allegedly when Harris began to shift in personality. The pair began to vandalize houses and sneak around at night, and while initially these missions that they would run were a bit lighthearted, they would soon grow cruel. For Halloween in 1997, they bragged about shooting kids with a BB gun, and Klebold was suspended for carving slurs into a locker. Harris relied on Brown for rides to school and around town, as he did not drive. But after an argument involving Brown being repeatedly late, Harris was told that no more rides would be given, and Brooks Brown became the subject of bullying. Eric Harris would actually throw a block of ice through Brown's windshield, and in response, Brown told all about Harris's exploits involving drinking and other mischief. Claybold would eventually hand over a piece of paper to Brown, telling him that he should look at it, which described various acts of vandalism, pipe bombs, and a desire to kill people. Most believe that this may have been a cry for help, but we don't really know. Brown's parents called the police, and unrelated, Harris and Klebold were arrested for breaking into a van in order to steal electronics. While in juvenile detention, they were model students, a reputation that, if you will recall, Ed Kemper also earned. The pair began writing in journals about a judgment day and kept a notebook titled The Book of God. In it, Klebold writes about self-harm, alcohol, self-medicating, and suicide. Harris wrote of the conformity of people, stating that only he and Klebold had self-awareness. He wrote that he wanted to kill mankind and of his love for Nazis. By 1998, the two had begun building explosives and making napalm in order to prepare for what soon would happen. They tried to recruit a friend of theirs, Chris Morris, but laughed it off as a joke when he declined. They meticulously took notes about the number of exits in the school and student movement, as well as loopholes in gun laws. In November of 1998, they convinced a mutual friend of theirs to buy them shotguns and a high-carbine rifle at a gun show, and later a semi-automatic pistol from another friend behind the pizza shop they worked at, and honestly, I can't imagine how those two felt after learning what happened. While they ran into some obstacles with various warnings making their way out, according to All That's Interesting, where the bulk of this backstory is from, the most persistent one was Klebold's mental state. He often wrote about plans to kill himself, signing many of his entries goodbye. On the morning of the 20th of April, the two left their houses at 5.30 a.m. to begin what would be their final day. Brown noticed that Harris was missing from school, and while leaving just before lunch, they encountered each other outside of the parking lot far from the usual parking spot. Harris was wearing a trench coat and carrying a large duffel bag, 
and told Brown, It doesn't matter anymore, Brooks. I like you now. Get out of here. Go home. Brown left and was only a block away when he began to hear what he thinks are fireworks. The time was 11.19 a.m. The initial plan, as far as we can tell, is that two pipe bombs were to go off in the cafeteria and kill hundreds of students all at once, leaving the rest to try to escape where Harris and Klebold were outside, ready to shoot anyone trying to do so. But because these bombs were hastily made that morning, they did not go off and they decided instead to go into the school to start their rampage. While some believe that the victims were targeted, this change in plans has suggested that they were more random killings than anything else. There is a story that one of the victims, Cassie Bernal, was asked if she believed in God and when she responded yes, was shot. A book was even written about it. However, allegedly the question was not asked of her but to another student who was wounded and when the yes response came, the shooter walked away. By 11.35, the pair had killed 12 and injured 23 others, and shortly after noon, they turned the guns on themselves and died by suicide. Police and sheriff deputies, believing that there was a continuing danger, did not move on the shooting area for hours after this. During this time, some of the victims bled to death, and this led many to criticize the police and the school for their slow response and inaction. This would lead to lawsuits by the victims' families and even the family of Klebold for the police's lack of action. Memorial crosses were erected in a park, but the two memorializing Harris and Klebold were torn down. The school reopened in the fall of 1999. I don't have any good transitions between these stories, and so... The year was 2010, and on this day, April 20th, the Deepwater Horizon drilling rig exploded, killing 11 and discharging oil into the Gulf of Mexico, causing an environmental disaster. They made a movie about this one, starring Mark Wahlberg. The story of Deepwater Horizon starts with BP and the Macondo Oil Prospect in the Mississippi Canyon, which, as you know, is a valley in the continental shelf. The Deepwater Horizon drilling rig was positioned almost 5,000 feet over the oil well that it was drilling into. The problem began when a bubble of methane escaped the well and quickly made its way up the drill column, expanding and breaking seals and barriers before finally exploding. This is, of course, according to rig workers in interviews conducted by BP during its internal investigation. The gas broke through a concrete core that had become too weak to withstand such pressure because nitrogen gas had been used to accelerate the curing. Once the gas made its way to the rig platform, it ignited, engulfing the rig in flames and killing 11 people. Now, I know what you're thinking. Shouldn't there have been some kind of safety measure in place in order to prevent this kind of thing from happening? And the answer is yes. And they did have one in place, it just hadn't been maintained properly, and as a result did not work as it should have. Later investigations would show that Halliburton and BP both knew of this issue, and even covered up a similar incident two years prior. On the 22nd of April, the drilling rig capsized, which caused a rupture in one of the risers. Drilling mud had been injected into this riser in order to maintain pressure, and with it now ruptured, Oil and gas were able to overpower the mud and leak oil into the gulf. 
Somewhere between 1,000 and 60,000 barrels a day were lost until the well could be capped off and stopped 87 days later. By the time the well was permanently sealed September 19, 2010, over 200 million gallons of crude oil had made its way into the Gulf of Mexico, creating what is considered the worst oil spill in United States history. Controlled burns of oil and debris were made, releasing up to 4.6 million pounds of black carbon into the atmosphere, and chemicals to break down and dissolve the oil were used in an effort to clean up, but it's unlikely that all of this oil will ever be truly cleaned up. BP throughout all of this downplayed the severity of the situation with an internal memo assessing that the leak was 20 times larger than what they were letting the public know and claiming that everything was guesswork. No one knows how much oil is still down there. Ultimately, it was decided by a New Orleans judge that BP was the majority of the one at fault and was ordered to pay $65 billion in fines. In 2012, BP even pled guilty to 14 criminal counts for illegal conduct surrounding the Deepwater Horizon disaster, and although fined, no one faced jail time. I'm going to end this on a slightly lighter note to offset some of the darkness of the day, and so, the year was 1993, and on this day, April 20th, Uranus passed Neptune, an event that only happens once, every 171 years. As you know, William Herschel and Uranus are a large part of this podcast, and so when presented with a topic related to either, it's worth a mention. That's going to do it for us today. If you like this podcast and want to hear more, give us a rate and a review. That helps me out and helps steer this in a direction that is hopefully good for all. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can find the Was audio version on your podcast app of choice. You can find me on social media and at YouTube at the Apple Cider Club. And as always, I want to thank the Tim Kreitz Band for our musical theme. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.